Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode of Other People is brought to you by Tweaked Audio, purveyor of fine earbuds and headphones. Right now, listeners of this program can get 33% off. Just go to tweakedaudio.com. And enter the offer code other people, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L, tweakedaudio.com, 33% off, get some earbuds, get some headphones. There are seven styles to choose from, seven colors to choose from, mic'd versions, non-mic'd versions, great for music, great for talk, with a noise-reducing design, compatible with iPods, iPhones, Android devices, all MP3 players, and most phones. Also, did I mention, there's a lifetime warranty. Go to tweakedaudio.com. And enter that offer code, other people. These are earbuds. You can listen with them. These are headphones. You can listen with them too. Go and get some. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Big, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is happening here. This is unfolding in a reality that some people believe is a hologram. I don't know what that means. Is this a hologram? I read that once, that we're living in a hologram. My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm uh, very excited to be with you right now. Thank you for listening. I have a great program for you. Alexis Coe is my guest. She was uh, formerly a research curator at the New York Public Library and uh, has written for a variety of publications, including The Atlantic, The Paris Review, The All, The Owl. It's called The Owl, uh, The Toast, and Vice. And uh, her first book is called Alice and Frida Forever. It's a work of history. It's a uh, riveting true crime narrative, and it's available now from Pulp Zest Books. I will uh, be in conversation with Alexis in just a minute. I do want to get to some mail first. been getting some mail uh, from listeners. And uh, this letter comes from a listener named Rebecca who writes, Hi, Brad. I'm a longtime listener, subscriber, and occasional Twitter correspondent, and I love your show. I've learned so much from it, and I'm not even a writer. I'm a reader to whom you have introduced so many great authors I might not have heard of otherwise. Thank you. Uh, I just listened to the Chelsea Hodson episode, episode number 340, and I have to admit it made me a little bit uncomfortable. Do you think it's possible that you pushed too much for details of her sexual experiences during the discussion of the, quote, dating prostitution website? 
I understand you want to ask questions that you think your listeners want to hear the answers to, but this listener at least wanted you to stop asking how close she got to meeting a potential customer or whatever you want to call those men. It felt a little too prurient. I also understand that these ne- these near encounters were part of the subject of, of Hodson's chapbook and so therefore fair game in an interview. But your questions were very much about her personal experience and not her book. Perhaps you cross the line here or ask questions of a woman that you might not of a man. Just a thought. I'm only writing because you have always seemed very open to feedback, positive or negative. I greatly admire that in you. I'm pretty sure I could never do it myself. Thanks once again for putting the time and effort into the podcast. Best, Rebecca. So thanks, Rebecca. Uh, I don't think I went too far. And I'm normally quick to agree with my critics, but Chelsea's book is a work of nonfiction. So, uh, you know, in, you know, if you say, oh, the questioning was about her and not her book, well, uh, they're pretty much one and the same. Also, this podcast, as I've said many times, is about the author and the author's personal life, uh, their life story, where they're from, what's going on. Uh, and it's usually not about the contents of the book. In this particular instance, I had read the chapbook, um, and the chapbook is autobiographical, so there was some overlap. But Chelsea, uh, in her uh, chapbook, is dealing with themes of objectification and commodification and sexuality and desire. And uh, in her real life, you know, for a time, or at least in the context of, uh, you know, the, well, yeah, and then, and then in the context of the book, she contemplated um, offering up her body to rich men as a way to uh, subsidize her art life and so on. And it's a very thoughtful and intelligent and uh, beautifully written book. And, you know, I asked about it. Sex is interesting and people like hearing about it. So if uh, there's anything prurient, you know, just to kind of play devil's advocate on myself, if there's anything prurient, uh, if there was any overreach in the way that I conducted the interview, it might be rooted in my feeling that people generally like hearing about sex. So like from the perspective of listenership and listener engagement, yeah, I, you know, I like uh, talking about sex on this show because I know that people will listen. <laughs> people like to hear about that stuff. It's no great epiphany. And, you know, as to questions of gender, uh, did I ask Chelsea Hodson questions about her sex, uh, her sex life that I wouldn't have asked a man? You know, that's hard for me to say. I like to think not. I like to think that I'm gender neutral and that I don't lean one way or the other. But again, uh, you know, in the interest of honesty, I'm a human being. I'm a straight man. Maybe it's more interesting for me to hear about a woman having these kinds of experiences than it would be to hear about a man doing it uh, just because of my orientation. I guess that's possible. Though, having said that, you know, I, I think if I were talking to a male author who was writing about his experiences using a dating website where he essentially agrees to bankroll women in exchange for sex and companionship, I like to think I would be every bit as curious and invasive in my line of questioning. You know, I just haven't come across that particular book, to be honest. And that's not to say that it doesn't exist. Uh, or maybe if it does exist, it's it's written by somebody like Tucker Max or uh, some other douchebag. So, again, to emphasize, you know, Chelsea's book is intellectually rigorous. It's soulful. It confronts these things with abrasing honesty, uh, you know, and deep introspection. It comes at the thing 
from the perspective of a female, which I think is interesting and adds a layer of, uh, you know, uh, not complexity, but a, a layer of interest. You don't often hear women, uh, come at subject matter like this with her level of, uh, openness. And I just hope I didn't make it seem otherwise in the interview. That certainly wasn't my intent. You know, the fact is the chat book, very candid about sex. Sex is a huge part of human existence and uh, it's often danced around in conversation it is often considered impolite to talk about it in too much detail. There's a lot of repression when it comes to how we talk about uh, our bodies and what we do with them and so on. I don't think that's necessarily helpful. And it's certainly more boring. So I try to go there as much as I can. And, you know, as, as uh, most of you know, I don't do a ton of prep for these conversations slash I don't do hardly any. That's my MO. <laughs> and, uh, I go in, I listen, I react, and then I share the conversations with my audience with very little to no editing. Mostly no, I almost never edit these conversations. You get what I get. And, uh, you know, it's an inexact uh, art. It's an imperfect science. You know what I mean? I hope that explains it. So thank you, Rebecca, for listening and for subscribing uh, to premium and for taking the time to write me. I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope that uh, that answer was satisfactory. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Alexis Coe. Uh, I had a great time talking with her. Her book, uh, A Work of History, A Work of True Crime, A Work of Nonfiction, is called Alice and Frida Forever. It's available now from Pulp Zest Books. Let's get to the interview, shall we? This right here is Alexis Co. I'm shopping around the second book, but I oh, did right. live in New York for um, for six years, and I had actually just planned on going there for a summer. Uh, I went to the Columbia Publishing course after college, and I was trying to decide between grad school or life as an editor. And I ended up taking a job, um, first actually working for Dan Brown for a few months. Wait, the, the, wait, the novelist, the, uh, the, the, what is it? Not the Celestine prophecy, the, uh, Da Vinci code, the Da Vinci code. You worked for him. I did very briefly. Um, because I was hired to do research and to help his agent, but his agent, uh, didn't like anyone else touching his, his things. And he is, um, possessive about his research. He prefers that his wife 
does all of it. And so I was basically just sitting there writing fan fiction to my fellow, my fellow um, cube mate. Did you, and did you interact with him? He left me a copy of the Da Vinci Code on my first day, and it said, Alexis, welcome. You will grow very tired of this book, Dan. And then the only other interactions we had were things like transferring millions of dollars. Wow. Yeah, he's got a he's made some money with his books. Yes. And and the money at that point was less important than the research he was doing. Okay. That he was proprietary over that, but I not. I want to like the thing is I've never even read that book. I've never read any of his books and uh, I base all of my like uh, weird loathing for him on hearsay and on this like author photo where he's like in high waisted acid washed jeans, like by a fireplace or something. And I feel sort of like a small human being for that. Like, is he a decent guy? Like, do you have any sense of it? I did not get a great sense of, of him. I think he seemed fine. He seemed nice. Um, buying houses in Antigua, very successful and happy with his, uh, Success and very active in it. I remember they were filming the Da Vinci Code, and he was right there and very excited about it, as was his agent. But I did not get a great sense of him, and that's why I left the job after just a few months, and I started working at Simon & Schuster um, in hardcover editorial. Okay, well, this sounds like an education, you know, for somebody who uh, aspires to write. You know, you start out uh, as an assistant to somebody who's like hyper successful financially, at least in terms of getting their work out into the world and finding an audience. And then from there you go to one of the big publishers. And what did you learn there? I learned there that I wanted to go to grad school. (laughs) Perfect. You got to learn sometime. I actually didn't know that I wanted to be a writer at that point. I knew that I enjoyed writing and it was something that I was often told I was good at. Um, I wrote a lot of flat copy when I was at Simon & Schuster, meaning the summaries on the back and on the inside. And I thought that was really fun. But I, um, I've always straddled this line between history and literature. And I really felt that history was uh, where I should be, that I should be living in the past. The present is garbage. And so I left Simon & Schuster. Okay, wait, I got to stab you. The, yeah. the history is where you should be, and the present is garbage. Like, where does this come from? <laughs> um, I where does it? I've always had a love of history. I I think that in order to understand anything, whether it's a book, uh, your relationship, why countries have issues with each other, you have to look to the past. And it is true that history repeats itself, but. Not so clearly. We really have to study it in order to understand. So, for instance, um, a well-tread topic is the Holocaust, just to keep this light. And <laughs> for, <laughs> for a long time, uh, historians looked at men, at Nazi men, and they wondered what sort of, um, when they thought about German citizens, they thought of men. And actually, in the Nazi East, women by their own volition, picked up guns and uh, shot children and were quite cruel. And it wasn't their job, but we didn't understand this. And you can't understand anything if you're excluding half the population. And so there are always new ways in which we're understanding mass atrocities, uh, political movements, enfranchisement, 
and it is never um is never an isolated incident. Yeah, no, you know, it's like, it's well, first of all, I just want to say that you've crushed my hope that, like, Hillary Clinton, like, having a female president could bring upon some sort of, like, peace, you know, revolution in peace <laughs> because of gender. But, like, it sounds like, you know, when shit gets dark, women are just as susceptible to it as men, or at least to a degree. Uh, or, or, like, think, go ahead. Right, they're, they're human. And I think that these innate traits that we assume are innate um maybe are uh, more malleable than we assume. Yeah. Well, you know, that's the thing about uh, orientation, gender, sexuality. Like, I think it is more malleable than a lot of people want to think. You know, it's that continuum thing. And, like, there can be men who are super sensitive and effeminate or just, you know, have the kind of nurturing personalities that we typically ascribe to women. And there can be women who are, like, cold and tough and shrewd and, you know, want to kick some ass in the way that we sometimes ascribe to men. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. I um, was doing research in gold country recently, and that involved me going into the Sierra foothills alone quite often and going into these small towns with populations of 2,000 or um, I I drove into one town called Volcano and it said population 160 crossed out 120. And I couldn't get anyone to tell me what happened. (laughs) Well, wait, so, okay, but, so you say gold country, like you're living in San Francisco, so you're driving up, like, what, into the Sierra? Right, exactly. So anywhere from Truckee uh, down to a place called Placerville is considered gold country. But okay. because I was alone, I was a woman alone traveling there, and this happens to me often. I have researched in Memphis for months at a time. People kept asking me if I was okay or if I needed someone to go with me or suggesting I wait until someone could. Um when they weren't, it, it was it involved things like going for a hike, and women aren't supposed to go for hikes alone. So I'm told this quite often. Yeah, no, it's funny. I, I'm thinking back to like uh, I hike. You know, people are going to kill me. My listeners are going to kill me because I always talk about this. But I hiked the Appalachian Trail when I was a young man, <laughs> and uh, there was a, there were a few women I met out on the trail who were doing it alone, and it was kind of like I felt my I found I found myself feeling very impressed by that. Um, but also maybe, maybe not that concerned. I mean, once you're out there for a while, you realize like it's probably safer than being in a city. Like you're, you're probably safer in gold country walking around by yourself in the woods than you are like walking the streets of San Francisco, right? Statistically. Well, yes. I mean, based on the population, but I think that in one particular town called Colfax, the, um, Foothills are known as a haven for meth addicts. They both go there to pan for gold to pay for the meth and then go up there to (laughs) do meth. And so I do understand that I should not be going there alone or at least with some preparation, um, letting a satellite phone, letting the sheriff know. But people do. You you got to bring some meth. Just like if uh, if they start chasing you, just chase them. Yeah, just chuck some meth out into the woods and run. They'll be they'll be gone. I mean, I just I uh, I've dealt with some methy uh, people in my day. It's it's an ugly (laughs) it's an ugly situation. I have not dealt with anyone who has been on meth. I do. I have been reading a book called The Shadow People, which is frightening. But when I went into City Hall and I asked um, which river had suffered the most from the drought, because that unearths more gold and that's where they would be, um, the question that was posed to me in response was if I was going up there unarmed. Jesus Christ. And were you? Were you packing? 
<laughs> no, I, I, I am for gun control, and so this will be an interesting part of this project. It does seem likely that I will have to protect myself in some way, and bear spray, which is essentially mace, doesn't even work on bears. It's certainly not going to work on someone who's on meth. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Like, you can draw. I mean, if you want, there's some YouTube videos. Like, if you get some pepper spray, and it, the thing about it is that you have to be accurate, and it's like, I mean... It can go yeah. wrong. It, like if the wind is blowing the wrong direction, you can wind up spraying yourself, and then like you and the meth addict are both like crumpled up on the ground, like <laughs> with burning eyes. Like it could go bad, but I guess it could go bad with a gun, and and even in an even worse way. Like you might want to get some training, right? Like get like a, a, a class and like do some target shooting. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to buy it on the street corner in the tender knob in San Francisco. Right. I'll go. But you know, you I'll could go, you, and you I'll... go to Walmart like the rest of America. Get your pistol, you know, or whatever. But I know. I will. I probably will. I have to talk. Um, I have to think about it some more. And, and to, this sounds ridiculous. And talk to my agent about it. <laughs> but I would. I would go through um, copious amounts of training because yeah. this is so frightening to me and so out of character and something I am still really reticent to do. I think it's. But I mean, you know, like I got to say, from like a uh, marketing perspective, like just to like really debase this whole process, like. Just the the notion of like female writer packing heat, researching in the methy hills of gold country, like it's like I can I can see like think pieces written about this in the future. Like this could be good for your career. I guess I should also mention that I am five foot two and I weigh a hundred pounds, right. and so I even think... better. <laughs> like in fact, like I think you should maybe like like I want like holsters, like two guns. <laughs> Like, uh, you know, you could have like dueling pistols like Wyatt Earp or um, or like, you know, like uh, Lara Croft Tomb Raider. Doesn't she have like a sawed off shotgun like on her back or something like you could get really into you're, it? Yeah, you're not the first person who's mentioned that I should um, that there should be wardrobe consideration. <laughs> right. Well, I, I, I always applaud people. Like, I, first of all, I want to say, uh, you know, with relative to your interest in history and the work that you do. Um, you know, research-wise and experientially that, you know, there's all this talk in America when it comes to education about how we are atrophying um, from the perspective of the sciences and the math, you know, perspective. Our, our kids just don't have the same skills as the kids in uh, Asia. And, you know, you hear all these different arguments about how we're failing our children, but uh, you rarely hear people talk about how poorly history is, te uh, is taught. Uh, or mm -hmm. is teached, as I was about to say. <laughs> um, and, you know, like, I think it's something that uh, is, uh, you know, we're underserving our students in, in much the same way. If we're failing them with math and science, and who am I to argue against it, um, you know, that I think history's got to be right up there as well. I remember in junior high, God, what was it like? There was, I had a junior high school history teacher, very well-meaning guy, but he was sort of uh, backwoodsy in a way, and he was talking mm -hmm. about the lessons of history. And some of the lessons of history that he gave us were uh, really dark and weird about war and the inevitability of war. And, you know, maybe it is inevitable, but I, I question where what his source material was. And um, I don't know. I think that uh, I agree with you in, in terms of needing to understand the present by looking to the past and being able to draw very important lessons from it and then... Uh, you know, it's hard not to look at our current state as a species and not think that we are failing to do that, um, you know, at least at the most important levels and in the most important ways to draw the lessons that we might need. I think 
You're absolutely right. And there was a, a sort of throwaway quote that I heard at a conference um, my first year in grad school in Minnesota that was, the woman said something like, if history is boring, it's the historian's fault. And that really resonated with me. And at the time, I was, um, I was actually at the conference delivering a paper that, you know, 40 people would read <laughs> at best. And I thought, that's true. This is not it. I was um, writing about political history, which was important. I wanted to be a serious historian. And at the time, I had actually come across the case that I would later write my first book on, Alice and Frida Forever. But it didn't seem like the kind of subject that I wanted to go into a department with if I was looking for tenure. And that's what I thought I was doing at the time. But I actually was living in Brooklyn, in Brooklyn Heights. And it was pretty cornered my place with the Brooklyn Historical Society. And I came back from this conference kind of frustrated with the the small audience I was reaching and the kind of work I was doing. And, and you're just alone so much in an archive, which is a lot like being a writer. But it's alienating and you just don't see who's reading it, who's interacting with it the way you do with books. I've seen people carrying my book. It's amazing. Oh, you um, have? Like them. out in public? Yeah. Yeah. I've also seen them pick it up and put it down. <laughs> right. Yeah. I've seen that at a bookstore before with mine. I was like, oh, like you're like, oh, 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 shit. It's not happening. You know, like sort of a letdown. Like you almost think they're going to buy it and no, it doesn't happen. Yeah. It's particularly heartbreaking, but um so I started going, I started, I went to the Brooklyn Historical Society and they wanted a graduate intern. And so I signed up to do oral history and very quickly fell in love with it and was put in charge of all the interns. And then they hired me as a project-based oral historian. And I thought public engagement is where I want to be. I want to craft history that's been on display that I can see people interacting with. I want to talk to people and hear about their stories and have their stories be anecdotal openings to greater themes. So these big ideas we like to throw around in history, intersectionality. But that uh, those jobs are few and far between. And I had to make this choice after I took my oral exams, after I had completed my master's, if I wanted to go on to um, get a PhD or if I wanted to find a job, and I, I really didn't know what I was going to do. And a job at the New York Public Library um, popped up on the Internet for a research curator. And the New York Public Library is the People's Palace. It has the finest collections um, it's gorgeous. on the East Coast. One of them, yes. And it's gorgeous, but they are um, – the the library was the first public library that was a collecting library, and it was meant to rival the British Library and other major European cities. And so it really houses our collective memory. So there's nothing more important to me as a historian and, and romantic about it than, than the New York Public Library. And so I applied for this job, and it was really competitive. I actually saw three people I, I knew from different points in my life in the waiting room, which was frightening, but I got it. And then I just left academia for it. And I spent um, years as the research curator at the New York Public Library. And so I became more active in history. I would um, work on exhibitions 
my job was to mine the special collections for a year or two and then curate exhibitions along with a senior curator. Where? And like, I just did that. In- what does that mean? Like, let's like slow down for a second so that listeners who mm-hmm. might, might not have any idea of what this means, like you, you, you mine the special collections. So like, what are the special collections and like, what are you mining? It seems like, where do you even start? They've got to have so much stuff. Behind locked doors in the New York Public Library um, are special collections, and they each um, have a different name and a different focus. There's some overlap, but not completely. And I'll start with the things that will surprise people. Um, there's an art and photography room that's underutilized, and it houses the second largest collection of artist books in America, with MoMA having the first largest collection. And artist books are um, things like Picasso's prints and their limited editions, and they cost you know anywhere from fifteen to a hundred thousand uh, dollars. They can have um, one of my favorites. This is again, I guess I just love talking about the Holocaust. It, it's an <laughs> arm, a mache arm with uh, numbers on it. It holds her grandmother and her grandfather. She has two, and then you open the book, and writing is around it. And so there's again this tactile, live history to me. The collections that people will know are things like the Forzheimer collection of Shelley and his circle or English and British literature, rare books. But there are treasures in there that are both known and unknown. So a lot of people know um, that there's a copy of T.S. Eliot's Wasteland in the Bird Collection with Ezra Pound's um, annotations. And you really see how much he influenced T.S. Eliot. You have um, which Virginia was which Woolf's was Watson. which was considerable considerable amount, right? He was a. I, I've heard pa- people say that Pound was a better editor than he was a writer. I mean, that, you know. Yeah, I I've heard that too. I don't. I'm not quite sure if I agree, but he was a gifted editor, and his markings are all over that book, and that's that's the exciting part of those collections. You have Dickens' prompt copies. He was known as a great reader. He was a performer, and when you look at his books and the way he marked up um, passages and crossed things out and changed words because he understood how something read and how something was heard. Um, also within that collection is Virginia Woolf's walking stick that, and the last journal entry before she committed suicide and used the walking stick and it was found on the shores. Wow. That's cheery. That's almost as cheery as the Holocaust. <laughs> I know, I, I'm, well, this is the thing about history, my friend. <laughs> yes, no, it's filled. It's filled with darkness, and you know, these eventually everything comes to an end, right? That's what history is in some ways about. So it's it's natural that you would have these things on hand. But when you talk about taking the, um, you know, the special, like going through the special collections, trying to find stuff to then present in shows or whatever, like where. Like, where are these exhibitions taking place? Like, in museums or at the library itself or all over the country? Like, how does that work? The New York Public Library has two exhibition halls. Uh, Wackenheim is smaller, and then Gottesman is quite large, and it is in this um, beautiful Beaux Art building, and everything is um, marble and ornate and gold leafing, and it's free. And so um, each exhibition has a theme. For example, the Centennial, my favorite, which um, was a celebration of all the special collections. And so that was uh, more of an amorphous focus, but they, um, 
I think they did the romantics recently, mapping the shoreline, because again, there's a cartography special collection. Uh, but the centennial, what was special about that is some of the things that I mentioned, as I said, um, T.S. Eliot, that's well known that that took the library. But there's a whole set of um, treasures, archival treasures, that are not listed that only the archi- only the archivists and the curators know about. And sometimes they can be found in the curator's desk. And the centennial was an opportunity to bring out all the treasures, whether they liked it or not. And what were some of the ones that like were just found in, in the desk or whatever? Like what were some of the ones that you unearthed? Well, this is this is a bigger object. Um, the first thing that comes to mind uh, were various typewriters, TSLAs in particular. Um, that the curator kept at his office. Jesus. <laughs> but, and also, um, Tizella used to write these uh, love letters to his... What, I mean, they were notes, but they were so um, beautiful, and they had illustrations, and they were intimate, and that was also found. In like what kind of... Like, like like sort of like uh, pornographic illustrations? Are we talking something no, gentler? No, no. Sweet, sweet, sweet. Like flowers and like butterflies and Catherine, ha- yeah, hearts. Valentine's Day, <laughs> uh, sort of a romantic. So, uh, okay, so why did you leave? I mean, this sounds like a great job. You like, like what? A, what an inspiring place to get to go to work. You know, like you get to walk into this beautiful. It, let's just put it this way: it's a lot less oppressive than like your typical corporate office in terms of aesthetics. So, why did you leave? It was a dream job, and it was very difficult to leave. But as I mentioned, I moved to New York for what I thought was a summer. And then six years later, I was still there. And I am a Californian through and through. And there were things that I missed so much, including family. But Where are you from? The, I'm from L.A. Oh, you are? Where Did I know that? I don't know. Maybe you mentioned it. Where are you from in L.A.? I'm from Beverlywood. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So, um, and like born and raised up until college or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, until about 12, and then uh, my dad moved to Westwood, and my mom moved to the Hollywood Hill. Okay, and then when you lived with your mom, or you lived with your dad, or both, I guess? Uh, I went back and forth. You did, okay. It's like a view from the Hollywood Hills, like looking out on like the Sea of Lights? Yeah, but it was... It- way at the top so you could either you could go either way you could be in the valley or you could be down in the city yeah okay so okay and um all right i guess we can we can do that then like you grew up here uh enjoyed it you said you like california i feel like people who grew up in california tend to come back uh not always but a a lot of the time it's like it's got a powerful draw and it's a great i mean there's a reason why there's so many people out here it's like the land of milk and honey it's so beautiful and, and the weather's great and whatnot but um, you had a happy time growing up in Los Angeles? I did. I definitely wanted to leave, and I couldn't really imagine myself um, living there. I thought that everyone was materialistic, and all so there was no culture, and all the things that you that you hear about L.A., so I feel like it's axiomatic. That wasn't what I missed. I missed hiking and the beach, the ability to see the Pacific, the way California smells, and yes, winter was difficult, but it it was a lifestyle, it's a general lifestyle, and as different as Northern and Southern California are, there are certain, um, as you said, certain we we share something in common, which is that we have an ardent um, 
and frankly want in relationship with the environment. And it, it has a hold on us. Yeah. 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 No, I'm, I mean, like I've been here for almost 15 years and didn't expect to ever live here. And now I think I'm, I might be in it for life. We'll see. I don't know. You can never. Also, New York has terrible Mexican food. There you go. That's a, that's a reason enough. <laughs> um, but you know, New York is such a great place too. I just think that it's, uh, you know, uh, speaking of axiomatically, it's just hard to make a living there and make it all work and have space. And, you know, I, it's, that's hard for me to, to kind of put that puzzle together, but you grew up in Los Angeles. You seem really smart. You must've been a nerd, huh? Were you like a big book learning smart girl growing up? I always read, I was always an assiduous reader and read things before I understood them, like um, Contracts with America. I read in third grade and because of Alexis de Tocqueville, I decided that I was a Republican because I thought a Republican <laughs> in the traditional sense where, you know, I would grow up to work for Obama. I love to read, but I also, um, I was the kind of student who would do work, but then I would ditch class to go read a book. Okay, yeah. That's like, but that means you're like extra smart. You're like self-directed. Like, you know, I, it's not like you're ditching class to go smoke cigarettes and like go to the mall. You're ditching class to like read something that you're actually interested in. And that's on an intellectual level. That's at least equal with whatever they're handing you in class. It became um, a source of happiness for me when I went to college. I was always getting in trouble for books for ditching class and middle school. I wanted to read during recess, which was not allowed um, Did you have any friends? I, Did you have friends? Were you good social? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I did have friends. And I think that was the confusing part is I really, um, I thought that these two things were disparate, that the girls who I hung out with liked to go to the mall and they played sports and they did a lot of things that did not involve books. And I had to sort of hide it. And so that's when I say I was always getting in trouble for books one way or another. What about, what about yes, dating? I, you dated and stuff in high school? I did. I had a bunch of boyfriends. Hey, look, I was cool. No, yeah. I had a bunch of, All right. I had I, a bunch I of boyfriends. I don't doubt it. And, uh, yeah, I, let's see. I, I had a famous boyfriend. Who? I, I don't know why I just said that. Come on. You, now you've got to tell. You can't, put, you can't lay it out there. Like, did you date some guy who went on to become an actor? So let me, let me preface this by saying that I was 15 years old. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I met a 17-year-old named Ben Savage at a party, and we dated for a couple of years. Okay. Why do I not know who this is? Fred Savage, you said, or Ben Savage? Ben Savage is Fred Savage's little brother, and he had a show called Boy Meets World, and I understand that now he plays a dad on a show that's inspired by that. Okay. Wow. Look at you. Okay. But, uh, you, you know, it's not but the thing about it is that when you live in Los Angeles, I mean, that, that's the entertainment industry is the dominant industry in the town, and that's who lives here, and, you know, you end up mixing with people. You go to school. I mean, it's like not... It might seem like crazy or statistically unlikely from the outside looking in, but I think when you live here, it seems entirely like plausible. Oh, it's totally plausible. There were years um, after high school when, for example, reality TV was big, or I don't—I stopped watching TV uh, around the 
around the time of um, the Iraq War because I, I wasn't going to watch television again until there was meaningful political discourse on the national stage. <laughs> so I showed them. You're, yeah, you're, I was going to say, you're going to be waiting for a long time. Uh, I mean, what is, yeah, no. <laughs> but that's such a, like, I love that stance. Like, what a, what a, uh, what a lot of moxie and, like, uh, idealism you had, you know? Yeah, I was 20, but I, I was also seeing people I went to high school with on these reality shows, and I just wanted to be done with L.A. for a while because it was um, – there's this worship of the entertainment industry, and there, you can't avoid being involved some way or another even if you really don't want to be. Did your, par- did I, your parents work in it? No, no, they didn't. Although my grandfather um, made one terrible movie, and my brother actually does. What does he do? He uh, has a job. It's, it's really big. It's called creative executive. But he used to actually work for Michael Bay. And he made him move to Florida, which was very sad for him, to a place called Jupiter. And uh, he worked on animation until that shut down. Whoa. Michael, I've seen Michael Bay out before. He, wear, he, he wears his, uh, he, he unbuttons his shirts very low. That's all I can tell you. Uh, yeah, it was like down to his like navel. <laughs> it was a warm day in summer. Um, so okay, so you your parents don't work in entertainment. You're saturated in it. You're dating a future uh, actor, celebrity guy, um, and you never had, even though you have this like writerly impulse and this creative impulse that must have been there at least in some capacity in childhood. Like you never entertained ideas that like oh you know I'll, I'll work in the movies or I'll do that. It never occurred to you. I knew I wanted to grow up to do meaningful work, but I wasn't quite sure what that meant because I loved Jane Austen, but I also loved Al Gore and was like president of the ecology club. So I I had vague ideas. Um, I just wanted to do well and I wanted to do good work. And in college, I found that I could do it all. And so I could read and major in English, and I could also major in history, and they directly connected in a really meaningful way. Where'd you go to college? Undergraduate, I went to the University of California, Santa Barbara. I was in a um, program called the Honors Program, and you had to have a certain you know GPA to get in. But once you were in, it was... Um, you had access to the entire university. The privileges were incredible. I could register for classes months in advance. I could create the perfect schedule, which meant, you know, classes Tuesday through Thursday. So I could go places on weekends or have fun or whatever it was. Santa Barbara is just ridiculous. Like the Yeah. And I think that's, yeah, that's the life that that you were sort of describing when you you asked if I had friends. No wonder you you came back. social, (laughs) Social and, um, been kind of academic, so it was perfect. I had this rule, which I was telling um, a friend recently who was asking me how to better budget her day, which is, um, I came up with this in college. It's not brilliant, but um, during the day, you work, and when it's dark out, you don't. That makes sense to me. I'm following. Yeah. <laughs> You're on board. Yeah, I'm 100% on board. Now, uh, were you, I mean, you, so you were a serious student, like you didn't show up at college and then like fuck around for a year. Like you showed up and like you were earnestly reading books and studying and trying to better yourself from day one. It sounds 
trite, but I think I blossomed. And a part of it was that I got to do a lot of tutorials through this program with professors, which meant I would take their big classes where they had, you know, a couple hundred students in a lecture hall, and I would go to sections taught by graduate students. But then I would also have a meeting once or twice a week with the professor one-on-one in which he or she would assign me supplemental work that was based on whatever I was interested in or they felt was important but somehow couldn't get on the syllabus. And it was that one-on-one interaction in which I wasn't just memorizing things. I was engaging with it and having a conversation, a lively conversation with someone who I respected and was quite kind and encouraging that. Um, really set me, I think, on my path. Wow. Okay. And that, it was at that point that you're thinking history, you're thinking English, you're thinking, but you're, you said it didn't, the writing thing didn't come to you until later. Like, wh- what was your mindset at that stage of your life in terms of like your profession and what you would pursue? Was it clear? Did you have like a, a vector? It wasn't. I was, I don't want to say fantastic, but deeply affected by professors. And one in particular um, was encouraging me to do literary theory because I understood Derrida, which I thought just came from reading the text. And I thought about doing that. Wait, what did you understand? What was it? Derrida? Derrida. Oh, Derrida. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And... I know I wasn't quite sure. I knew I liked to read. I, I thought New York was kind of cool, but I wasn't. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I really wasn't, and it was only through um, working both for Dan Brown and at Simon Schuster that I, you know, found that I wanted to be in academia and then left academia to work in public history, and then. When I decided to move back to California, exhibitions work on a two-year cycle, and so I had to call that two years in advance. And so when I moved back, I thought, okay, I'll find another job. My job doesn't even exist at the library anymore. There is nothing like it in San Francisco. And the opportunity to write about museums and to write about exhibitions basically came to me. And so I did, and very quickly decided, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm really going to do it. And I think within the year, I was writing for places like The Atlantic and Slate and had some helpful people um, recognize my work and how stop for, stop for a second. Who, how? Yeah. You were connected from having lived in New York to people in publishing? You had friends? Or no, people I actually, read you online, or like what? Yeah, tell me, because this is always interesting. I think to me and to my listeners and to people out there who are struggling or, or whatever you know, whatever stage. It's like, how does this stuff happen? You know, is it serendipity? Is it like hustle? Is it a combination of both? Like, how do you go from I think I'm going to start writing about this stuff to like the Atlantic is publishing you? Well, I'll get to the specific instance in a second, but I usually say that with any job, whether it was at the library or writing. Or I imagine, you know, being a doctor, you just have to work harder than everyone else. And from that, this mix of hard work and a bit of luck comes something good. Something good will come out of it. I I say luck, and I know plenty of people who say you make your own luck. And I think that's true to a certain extent, but then obviously you can't control everything. I, I was writing for local places. Um, the Village Voice owned a publication here called SF Weekly, and they just let me do whatever I wanted. I became their book critic. I became their museum critic. Um, And 
actually on Twitter, I think it was, Alexis Madrigal liked my work and was reading it. And at some point, I emailed him a pitch, and without even responding, he just passed it on. And I wrote my first piece for the Atlantic Cities on the mission here and um, how they were trying to do 3D mapping of it because it was inevitable. It is inevitable that it will crumble. It survived so many earthquakes, but it's just a matter of time. And then from there, I just pitched. I wasn't afraid of, I'm not afraid of failure. I think this is important because to me, failure is not a permanent state. It's what you actually need. It's quite necessary in order to succeed because that's how you learn what you're doing wrong. And so I wasn't afraid to blind pitch places, but I certainly doubted myself um, as much as everyone else does. And that only increases the more time that you, um, you spend as a writer. So for example, I didn't pitch the Paris Review for a couple of years and the pieces that I always thought, oh, maybe I should pitch the Paris Review, the New Yorker or something, they would show up in their feeds, like, uh, you know, the next day when they'll have a blog post about things to read around the internet. But I was too scared. And when I finally did, it was accepted. It was just a blind pitch. So it isn't, it's, it's lovely to know people. Certainly when you have a book out, it's quite helpful. But I don't think it is essential in order to become a writer. And when you say you have to work hard, because I mean, this is a, I mean, I've had this conversation so many times not only in this show, but just in life, like you have to work harder than everybody else. Like, what is that? Yeah. How, how do you know if you are, you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like everybody I know works hard and maybe there are some people who are fuck ups and are kind of lazy, but like really everybody I know is working pretty hard. Like how, how much, how much of a, and like you have this rule, you don't work after dark. You're not working that hard. <laughs> you know, I mean, Oh, like, I'm, I'm up at five. I'm up at four or five. I, I do. I'm up when it's still dark out, actually, usually, um, so you're working when I, you're working when it's dark out. You're breaking your own yes, rules. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> breaking my own rules. But the sun is rising rather than yes, setting. Yes. I I mean it's true. Everyone works hard. It was funny though when I moved back to California and I found that there were no similar jobs to being the research curator. I was worried, obviously, and friends would tell me, "Don't worry. You worked in New York. You will work." five times harder than anyone in California. And I'm not sure that I agree. I will say that people leave work earlier. And I think that's because lifestyle here, um, and certainly I think if this is more San Francisco than LA, it involves some sort of extreme activity or hobby. So you have to rock climb <laughs> right. or run or hike or do something after hours that's going to keep you in shape or that hike this weekend, you know, in Point Reyes that will end up with you shucking oysters. What are you doing? What's your thing? What's my thing? I like to hike. Uh, I play a little bit of tennis. I in, do rock climb. And you're about to be a uh, proficient with a with a hand with a firearm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm. Oh uh, yes. That's on next on your list. See, like no one in your Twitter feed is going to be able to compete. They'll be like, you know, oh, I just did a 5K, and you, you'll have like a vine of yourself like firing a uh, machine gun. This is so frightening. <laughs> okay, so you move back. I mean, and like, I trust me, I don't doubt your, your work ethic. I can tell just by talking to you that you have your shit together. Um, but it's like, it's hard to measure, you know? Like, I guess yeah. maybe, maybe like, I think individually, like we all know how hard we're working individually, like deep down. You know if you gave it your all, and if you're like tired at the end of the day, or if you 
fucked around on the internet for like six hours when you should have been working. You know, it, it seems like you have a pretty good discipline. I think that you can't be a lazy writer. And I know some really talented writers who tend to take a few too many days off or treat it like a nine to five. And when you're a writer, whether you're writing fiction or history or what have you, it's not a job, it's a lifestyle. And so you're thinking about it all the time, even when it's dark out. You know, you're thinking about it in, that's my dog, you're thinking about it in um, the market or when you go on that hike. And so I am always thinking about it, always writing things down. I, I also don't really believe in writer's block. Yeah, and that's no. a contentious subject. No, no. I mean, I think I think I I'm I'm with you. Like, I think you can have difficult periods where, like, fallow oh, yeah. fallow periods creatively. But like, you know, I think if you get into this thing where you start to diagnose yourself with writer's block, it's sort of like surrendering to it, and it becomes kind of a crutch. Like, you just got to keep sitting down and keep working. And for me, yeah. I mean, for me, it's that if I if I'm experiencing what what people call writer's block, it's a couple of it's a few different things. I'm scared of the piece. I'm scared of the undertaking of it. I don't know if I'm doing it right or how to get into it. Or um, it's not the right thing for me to be writing. I'm forcing myself to write something that doesn't interest me. Or I should just be switching to something else at the moment and then come back to it. And instead, um, you know, people tend to look at a a blank screen and I I try not to do that. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, you got to I think like, I think a lot of it too, like insecurity, like feelings of fear about, will I, am I good good enough? Like people, like it's easy to get into paralysis and like, I feel like too, like when you get into like a fear mode, you can start to spiral and it can be like, this is never going to get published. And even if it does get published, it's only going to make me $5,000 and maybe, you know, 35 people will read it. And you go into this like, you know, not so healthy uh, mental space that makes it very difficult to be creative. That said... Uh, I think there are practical aspects of life that can bear down on a person creatively um, in in ways that are real. You know what I'm saying? Like just mm-hmm. money pressure, relationship stuff. Like life can fuck with you. You know, you have to. Like it's a lucky thing to be in a space where you can be really productive creatively. Um, you know, and and you also have to make your own luck. You know, to a degree, but. Um, it sounds like you've been able to find the space and the time to write, uh, living in cities that are expensive to live in. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, how did you, how have you done that? Well, I, I, it's interesting that you, you said, you know, find the space and the time. It, it, it's not easy. And there are these things that are out of your control. So for me, if something's going on personally in my personal life, family or relationship, it's very hard for me to concentrate, particularly if I'm heartbroken. And then there are times where you just have to take yourself out of a situation in order to focus on the work. And so for all of last December, I had a sort of DIY uh, writer's retreat in which I had a friend who was moving and had an apartment with just a mattress on the floor in L.A. And I went there for a month with my dog and no Internet. And I just wrote and I wrote for like 17 hours a day and I finished the first draft of my book, but it wasn't enjoyable. And I missed, you know, every Christmas party and I missed my friends and I was lonely and a little, I went, you know, you're alone so much. You, you end up having feeling like you're going a little bit insane, but it was important to 
to me and it was important to the work. As far as living in these cities, when I was um, working in exhibitions, I made a decent amount, actually. It wasn't until I moved to San Francisco in which uh, I realized how difficult it was to be a writer. And right now I'm in that moment in between book deals in which it is very uncomfortable and I'm nervous. Your appearance on this podcast is going to cause your book sales to explode. I hope you're ready for that. Yes, please, everyone in my house and Frida. I really need you to. The needle is spiking as we speak. So um, how, you seem driven. Are you a, you're really driven. I, I think I am. The work is really important to me. Why? I think the things that you mentioned before, the self-doubt, the self-loathing, I feel good when I am lost in a piece when it's what I think about all the time and when it seems greater than myself. And so I think I just really enjoy what I do and I have always enjoyed what I've done because it's always been meaningful, which is not to say that other professions aren't, but for me, this feels special and it's the way that I am interacting with the world, not just professionally, but personally. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I was, uh, the, I don't even know where I was because I was online. You know how you just can, you read something online and you don't know where you read it and mm-hmm. you don't even realize how you got there. It's, it's like, a, it's almost like being drunk and waking up in a snowbank or something. <laughs> like You're like, well, what am I doing here? But I, um, not that I've ever woken up drunk in a snowbank, but, uh, I was reading something and it was a quote from Marina Abramovich about, uh, artists and how you define an artist. Mm-hmm. You know, or like it was a bunch of artists talking about how they self-define essentially. Like what is an artist and how do you measure that and talk about it? And she said something that really resonated where she said, you know, you, you are an artist by the degree to which uh, you make sacrifices, you know, for your art. Like it's about sacrifice, like the the way that you live, you know, whether you're willing to live hand to mouth or you're willing to forego uh, a relationship and a family, or you're willing to live in a, you know, a mm-hmm. very, a very tiny Brooklyn apartment, or you're willing to, uh, write in your car during your lunch break instead of going out with coworkers or, you know, whatever it is. But, um, that really resonated with me. Like people who were all in and who were willing to set the alarm for four thirty in the morning and get up and do their shit, or who are willing to go sleep in a studio apartment and, you know, on a mattress on the floor and work 17 hours a day. Like, that's the deal, you know, and some people are willing to go there and some people aren't, but it's very rare that an artist of significance is not, you know, I can't think probably if I dug, dug into it, you know, I would find that like, that's a consistent through line in every single one of their careers. It's true. Um, I have a friend who's a writer, so I won't mention him, but he, um, he, he says that he's sorry for anyone who's married to a writer. And I think to a certain extent, that's true. It is your first love. It is what you're devoted to. And this question of family, women have to balance work and home. But when you're a writer, family is not only difficult because it's something that you, um, you know, you constantly have to tend to, but we don't make a lot of money and it is um, intermittent between deals, between selling pieces, long form, books, whatever. 
And so it is a different kind of life. So yes, you have to give up a lot and you have to be okay with it, which doesn't mean that I don't have moments of panic and think, what am I doing? How Good. am I going to retire? I like to hear that. I need to, because I mean, honestly, like I, I'm like, I feel like, uh, it can be easy sometimes to assume that people aren't dealing with that or something, you know, and it's, it's, it's reassuring to know that I'm not the only one. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. I think about it all the time. I, I, I don't know if I'm making the right choice. I'm also, you know, on the wrong side of 30, just, just, the, just a smidge. And I think, well, what, what do you, you should be having a baby right now, not writing a book, but a book is kind of a baby. Yeah, no, I mean, that analogy, I mean, it can seem a little bit uh, hackneyed or whatever, but I think it's a completely accurate feeling, you know, like the the, the gestation, the difficulty, um, you know, the feeling of pride, <laughs> the irrational love, you know, all that kind of stuff is somewhat similar. Like the like my joke always was like, you know, when your book is finally published and it goes off, uh, you know, and it's in bookstores or whatever, or it's available on Amazon and Powell's and all that kind of stuff and people can find it. You know, that's the phase where you're like, it's like your kid goes to school and you're just like hoping it doesn't get like, you know, he, he doesn't get his ass kicked on the playground or whatever. And, um, you know, that's sort of a, you have that sort of protective feeling, or at least I did. Definitely. And, um, so like family stuff, like you're not married, you're able to focus on your work, um, to a degree that maybe, uh, people who are like deep into a marriage with kids and stuff cannot like you, you recognize that? Is that where you are? I am... Uh, separated from my husband of five years recently. And we got together when we were 19. And so, and we were together until 32. And so that did provide a good amount of stability and a family. Um, but no, I'm, I'm now, I'm single and I'm, I'm, I'm a single writer. So you can pour, yeah, you can pour all this energy into book, into a book. Is that what you're planning on doing? The, Next book is something I would not have done before because it requires me. Gold Country is going to be my archive, and it requires that I go live there for six months because it's about the legacy of the old West meets the new West. And if I was uh, still married, I mean, still married, but if I um, was with my husband and we were at the point that we thought that we would be at, um, you know, having children and and such, I wouldn't have been able to do that. And so I am embracing this freedom that I have. Um, and, and I'm trying out this life as much as, um, anyone else, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And so when it comes to like, you know, you're talking about this book that you're working on in gold country and like where old West meets new West, like it sounds like very fascinating and, uh, I'm sure you're going to unearth all sorts of interesting stuff, but uh, what I'm curious about is twofold when it comes to doing the kinds of books that you do. A, how do you arrive at your ideas? Like, is there, a, I mean, is it just like you muck around until something strikes you and you're just going to the library and sifting through archives, uh, you know, or something else? And then what does the actual research process uh, on a day-to-day -day look like outside of the experiential stuff where you're packing heat in the woods and <laughs> panning for gold with methy people. Like, like, you know what I'm saying? Like start with right. how you arrive at your ideas. And then uh, for people listening who might have like a curiosity about writing nonfiction or historical fiction or something that would involve research, mm -hmm. like what does it, how do you do it? You know, these 
two books are so different. With Gold Country, I had just come back from a book tour, and I was thinking a lot. I was away from California for a while. I had a, a sort of traditional book tour. I did the South. I did New York. And I came back and, and was thinking about where I was going to live next, and I thought, I want to stay in California but what is California right now? San Francisco is changing. It's always changing, but it's a difficult place to love right now. And I thought about what California's consciousness is. This is, this is definitely something where I was just sitting around with a glass of wine. Um, <laughs> or something thinking stronger. About, usually just wine. Yeah. Not in California. It was a really nice thing. But I, I'm sitting around thinking about this, and, and I start to think about why I love California and, and what traits we all share. As you said, we all seem to share something. And I just kept thinking that everything that I, I thought about the gold rush, I saw in contemporary California. And so I had just come back again from book tour, so I was used to traveling. I threw my bags in the car and my dog, and we went to gold country for two weeks. And that was very different um, as far as research and proposal than the last book in which I discovered this case of um, Alice Mitchell and Frida Ward. Alice, a 19-year-old in 1892 Memphis, killed her same-sex ex-fiancé, 17-year-old Frederica Ward. And she killed her because they had actually agreed to this. They were engaged to be married. It was a secret. It was 1892. You couldn't couldn't have a same-sex relationship then. You can't. You still can't get married. Um, same-sex marriage is illegal in Tennessee. And that story struck me like a gong. I read it on the subway, and I I missed a bunch of stops. But I wanted to be this serious historian who focused on citizenship in 1922, and I put that story aside, but I thought about it all the time for years. And as a, as a hobby, I I would just look through historic newspapers and noticed that, I mean, this was the rise of yellow journalism. So immediately I noticed that things were spelled incorrectly and that the articles that were about the same day, about the same thing were wildly inconsistent. And I just kept reading these untruths and thinking that they had some sort of motivation. And by the time I, and I just kept trying to find a place for that book, I would try to entice friends who worked in publishing editors. Um, you know, the attrition rate in, public, in uh, publishing is quite high, but I still have some friends from the publishing course who work at, you know, Penguin and Random House. Nobody wanted to touch it. They didn't really understand what it was about. They didn't see an audience for it. I think that, um, you know, in 2008 or whenever I started talking about it, maybe issues were different that they could touch. But I also tried to find an exhibition for it. Didn't work. And then when I came to California and I started writing, I thought, well, I should probably just do this. And so I kept reading around it, but I didn't have the... um, I didn't quite know how to go about it. Things weren't great in my personal life. And so I just kept working on it without actually proposing it anywhere. And then an editor who I knew in San Francisco um, who liked my work asked if I would want to uh, write a book on anything. 
and I thought about Alice and Frida and how I would want to tell their story in a very specific way. And so there was interest, and I started talking to a couple other other friends a little bit more seriously. But everyone had a very... Um, I would hand over the book and that would be it. And I had this very particular vision for it in which I wanted it to be um, curated in some way. It, it's narrative. They're, you know, 200 pages of words. But at the same time, uh, I I feel like if you don't see the love letters and you don't see the death records, you're not exposed to the things that I'm exposed to in the archive, that it's a disservice to the reader that they are somehow disconnected from um, the historical actors that they're supposed to care about, that they're supposed to understand the complications and how a love letter can be a name and then it can be threatening and you can hold two things in your hands. You can say this person is guilty and you can also feel sorry for them. And I just think that's difficult if you're not looking at the actual primary sources. And so as soon as I found um, an editor said, sure, whatever you want, um, then I wrote that book. But I went in with so much more knowledge than I have now, and I had thought about it for so many years. I had so much in mind, whereas I am figuring this out as I go along, which is great. I feel like a sponge, like I could learn German. Wait, like right now with regard to the Gold Rush book? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Feel, you feel like you could learn German right now? Your brain, your brain is that wide open? Yeah, I feel I feel as though I am, and I, I often feel this way though on research trips. I felt this way in Memphis. Um, it's exciting to me, and I didn't know anything about Southern history. I'd always flanked the coast both physically and in research. Yeah, well, no, there's something about getting out in the field and like getting your hands dirty and traveling. Like traveling is so invigorating. I don't understand people who don't like to travel and you know have adventures. Um, it, you know, for me, I mean, listen, having a good day at the keyboard is wonderful too, but there's something sort of great about being out and living life and experiencing things. Absolutely. And I think that it's really important to see the unknown. You can imagine it. You can read nonfiction and fiction and think that you have a great sense of things, but the world surprises you. And there's still a lot to be discovered that hasn't been written about. Sure. So who are some of your favorite historians? You know, because they're not all created equal. Um, that, no. That, I, think, I think that's, I mean, I mean, that's probably uh, an understatement or an obvious statement. But I, I feel like it's of a piece with what I was talking about earlier regarding history being undertaught. Like, not only is it undertaught or poorly taught, um, but it's poorly taught in the sense that, like, the historians that are given to students are not the right ones. <laughs> um, you know, they, they need to have good taste. Teachers need to have good taste in which historical records they're presenting. I think you're right. They're, I'll give you an academic name and then a non-academic name. Okay. I prob- Two Gilton. I, I'm going I'm to be shamed by not knowing either of them, I bet. Go ahead. Oh, um, well, Drew Gilpin Faust is uh, the president of Harvard, and she's a Civil War historian. And I really love her book, This Republic of Suffering. She is my favorite uh, historian of the Civil War. And then um, Karen Abbott, who is, full disclosure, also a friend, is a popular historian. And she uh, also does the Civil War, which is funny. I, I, like most Americans, I feel, I feel this pull towards the Civil War, and yet I don't really write about it. I write around it now. Of course, the Gold Rush happened before, and then um, it influenced what came after. But 
You know, um, you know it's weird. I uh, mm-hmm. I watched Ken Burns as the Civil War while my wife was in labor with our daughter. <laughs> <laughs> I always think of that whenever somebody says the Civil War because like I, it was just re- like something about Ken Burns movies is very relaxing to me. Just like the slow zoom on like a sepia tone photo and. I was trying to kind of sleep on my cot and it was like, in, it's narrated by like somebody like Morgan Freeman esque, you know, with that like silky voice or whatever. So, um, but it, yeah. it, it's haunting. I feel like there's uh, something, there's something like all war is awful, but there was something particularly awful about that one. Well, I think we, I mean, well, the first thing is we haven't fought a war on our soil. And so that was quite a big deal. The country was divided. And at times, the country feels really divisive, but not as though we're going to take up arms. It was a defining issue as a nation. We were figuring out who we were as empire builders. And in order to do that, you need to know who you are at home. More Americans died than in any other war in the Civil War. Yeah. For some people, it's still very much alive in the South. Um, I drove by Confederate flag. Oh, hell yeah. The, the reenactors are prevalent. Yep. It's Those no, are popular vacations. No, there's it's a real thing. I feel like it's a much realer thing in the South because the South lost the war, and I feel like uh, the mm-hmm. South the South was on the wrong side of the of morality of the war. I mean, if that's like I, I feel like that's like a, a poorly phrased, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, like they were on the wrong side mm-hmm. of history, uh, the wrong side of history on the slavery issue, and I feel like they were, you know, their economy was decimated and blah blah blah, and so. I, I, yeah. think, I think the combination of like socioeconomic devastation, uh, like a cataclysmic cultural shift, at least from their perspective, and then um, guilt, you know, mm-hmm. th- those sorts of things echo, uh, even if, you know, times have changed and we're many generations removed from anyone who would have been alive during that time. Like, I think that's real. I think those echoes are real and you can feel them. I'm, my family's from Louisiana, so I spent a lot of time down there and... Um, I feel it when I'm down there, you know? Yes, definitely. It's palpable. And people feel as though they can see their roots and they can see their family and the connections are direct um, and also ingrained. People join uh, young, you know, young Confederates and and all sorts of different uh, groups and organizations as people join the Girl Scouts and other places. Right. That's fucked up. <laughs> it makes me scared. I mean, I understand. I, I, mean, under, I understand yeah. cultural, like appreciating your cultural roots, and I know that some of it, some aspects of it, can be benign. But it's just like there's something at the very least. It's very tacky to me, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you brought up, um, there's just no, there's no good reason that they. <laughs> when you brought up the economic justification, that also that always just fails completely. It's all flat well yeah to me yeah but i mean you know i guess like if it's the way you feed your family and it's like deeply entrenched and like to i mean i can understand just at a at the level of human nature and how people are how i am you know you gotta completely change everything it sounds awful to say but like do you, you know what I'm, you know what i mean like you can kind of imagine how people might have been able to justify when it comes to dollars and cents and like massive inconvenience or massive change, people can justify a lot to themselves. Uh, I think they can. It's hard for me to imagine doing that to another human. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, you, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's unthinkable. And, uh, I feel like, did you see 12 years of slave? I did. That felt like it was rendered really well to me and like brought it home. And it was just like, how in the fuck did these people 
sleep at night? Like, how could anyone have been like, yeah, this is the right, this is the right thing to do. You know, like, um, it's a collective insanity. It is. I think Einstein called, uh, world war two and, uh, a mass insanity or some, an insanity of the masses. And that I always think of those kinds of, um, those issues that overtake a society and, and you're just like, what are you, how could you have justified this in any way? How could you not, not seen yourself in this situation? It, it's, it's inexplicable in a lot of ways. And that's why history is so interesting. How do we explain these things? How do we understand these things that, that seem unreasonable to us? How do we make them reasonable? Well, and I feel, yeah, I mean, I just like fumbled trying to come up with it just then, but it's like, uh, to draw it in um, a context that's more immediate, like when I think about what just happened in France and you watch like um, how the French population and how European populations have uh, reacted to it. And, and, you know, everyone around the world is reacting to it, but for them it's more immediate because it's right in their hometown or in their backyard. And I think there's a lot of fear in that culture right now that r- reminds me in not so pleasant ways of uh, the, the temperature of America in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. And what it brings home to me is that like, uh, negative states, whether it's fear, paranoia, anger, um, you know, lust for revenge or whatever, uh, very dangerous when uh, something, a negative state like that becomes uh, collective, you know, there's nothing mm-hmm. more, there's nothing more dangerous than a big population of people who are f- paranoid, <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, or just a big group of people. I mean, yeah, mob. protest mob mentality is, yeah. is difficult. When I want to protest something, it, sometimes I don't because I just think about the crowd or the situation or the place and the mentality, and I, you know, have to make a decision. Yeah, and so I guess, like, I mean, if I'm trying to make sense of the senseless, um, you know, you get enough people together thinking the wrong way. Um, and really bad shit can happen. There's something about that collective energy, you know, that can wind up causing people to do things that would seem unthinkable from the outside in or with the benefit of like, you know, longer perspective. But who knows, man, I think we all have it in us uh, to do really great things. And I think we all have it in us to do really dark things. And, um, you know, sometimes the darkness prevails, unfortunately. It's true. I think so on that what we want. Yeah. What a perfect place to end. Um, but no, I mean, I, I guess you could say something about the Holocaust here just to bring everything full circle and uh, like bookend, <laughs> you know, bookend no, the show. You don't get any more of the Holocaust. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So you've got the gold rush book going. Um, you, you did Alice and Frida or Alice plus Frida. Is that the proper reading of the title? Alice and Frida. Forever. Alice and Frida. Okay. Well, there's a plus, so I don't know if like, you know, Indeed. um, so you've got that, you've got the, uh, the gold rush book. You don't know what the next book is going to be. No, the, the Gold Rush book is the next book. I'm working on the proposal. Oh, so it's not, okay. oh, after that, I don't know. No um, let's see. I'm also a uh, Betos historian, which is a great blog uh, that was started by Mallory Ortberg and Nicole Cliff uh, oh, yeah, yeah. over a year ago. Yeah, I see those guys in my Twitter feed all the time. So you, uh, you're their historian? I am. I'm also the alt historian. Um, so everyone let me off the hook during the book tour, so I have to return to it. So my um, column at the Toast is called Archival Mix and at the All Hammer Time. All right. Any like is that an MC Hammer reference or no? It is, but also it's about auctions, so it's just me. 
Okay. Thinking that's funny. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll tell you, I've had uh, a wonderful time talking with you. Uh, I, you know, I'm very fascinated by what you do. I congratulate you on the success you've had, and I certainly wish you well uh, in Gold Country. And uh, obviously, I, I pray for your safety. I hope you, you know, you take care of yourself. I hope you're heavily armed. And if anyone gives you any <laughs> shit, <laughs> you put them down. <laughs> Oh my I'm kidding. Well, thank I'm you kidding. very much. Yes. No, great talking with you, Alexis. It was really nice talking to you too. Thanks. All right, guys, there you go. That's Alexis Co. Her book is called Alice and Frida Forever. It's available now from Pulp Zest Books. You can find her online at alexisco.com. She's on Twitter. Her handle over there is Alexis underscore co. She's also on Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. Uh, thanks to today's sponsor, Tweaked Audio. Go get yourself some headphones. Go get yourself some earbuds. At tweakedaudio.com, enter the offer code other PPL, O T H E R P P L. Get yourself 33% off. Lifetime warranty on that equipment, by the way. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. As always, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app. This podcast has its own official app, it's the best way to listen. You get the app on your device. The, the app is free. Did you know that? You get the app on your device, on your iPhone, on your Android, on your iPad, whatever. And then once you have that app on there, the most recent 50 episodes of this program will be there free, waiting for you. And then if you want to stream uh, the deep archives, you can sign up for premium right there within the app. It's very cheap. Get access to everything, all 340-some-odd episodes. So go get the app. If you want to email me, uh, let me know what you think. The address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. Send me your thoughts. Tell me a story from your personal life. Complain. And I'm sorry about the delay on uh, today's episode. I got to be honest, uh, I'm a little scatterbrained. Martin Luther King Day threw me off. Had Monday off. My daughter was off of school, been very busy. Uh, I sort of forgot today was Wednesday, even though I didn't, if that makes sense. Sort of, sort of uh, surprised me. My daughter was asking us, uh, my wife and I, about Martin Luther King and how he died. She gets this stuff at school. You know, she's like, did he die? We're like, yes, he died. And she said, did he die from a weapon? Because apparently the word weapon is now circulating in uh, nursery school. Yes, he died from a weapon. Where do people get weapons? (laughs) It's awful. What do you say? Walmart, honey. People get weapons at Walmart. Please remember that Emily Dickinson refused to be photographed and that Samuel Johnson had a compulsive inability to walk past a picket fence without superstitiously touching each separate picket as he went. That's it for now. Thanks once again to Alexis Coe. Go get her book, Alice and Frida Forever. And uh, thanks to you guys for listening. Thank you for tuning in, as always, and for putting up with uh, the slight delay here. I will uh I will be back in a week with another conversation. Have some good episodes coming up. Got a TMB book club author in the works. Sign up for the Nervous Breakdown Book Club over at thenervousbreakdown.com. I interview every book club author on this program. You get a book every month for less than the cost of a book. Might as well plug that. In fact, I'm doing an I'm uh, doing an interview with a book club author right after I finish this uh, episode. 
I'm industrious. I watched the uh, State of the Union address last night. Did you guys watch that? Sort of a sucker for it. They're the, I mean, what is it? It's a lot of, uh, it's a political Super Bowl. A lot of showmanship. Nothing's going to happen, right? It's just like all talk, but it sounded good to me. Got a little choked up here and there. I was very tired, though, so like maybe that had an impact. It's like I really like Obama. I always have, but uh, the thing about it, like the uh, the CIA torture, the uh, Edward Snowden finding out that like you know he's been in, uh, allowing the interrogation or the uh, spying on you know ordinary human beings troubles me. I'm conflicted. But, you know, I don't fucking know. 